Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Today's podcast, our final episode of 2022, is a unique episode for me. My guest, Thomas Mallon, is an author whose work is special in my life. His novel, Fellow Travelers, created a lasting bond and memory for me and my husband, and is a gleaming gemstone in the mosaic that is our relationship. We used to talk of how great it would be to someday invite Thomas Mallon to dinner and thank him for his work, stories, and characters. After reading so many of his works, it feels like Thomas is an old DC friend with his stories intertwined with our life and the city where our love story began. This conversation, recorded in D.C. on a beautiful winter morning, reminds me of the power of a friendship that exists through his characters and the pages of his stories, a friendship that spans 14 years. And yet, we hadn't personally met until the morning of this podcast recording. In this very special episode, we hear his story and have a conversation with Thomas Mallon, We discuss his novels and how the changing stories in our lives unfold, not only through the characters on the pages, but also in the lives we lead and change. We also get to hear more about his soon-to-be-released novel, Up With the Sun. Enjoy the conversation, and Happy New Year. Your writing has been pivotal in our story. Thank you. And it's such an honor to meet you and to be able to thank you in person. Clearly, uh, the Washington Trilogy is something that a lot of people talk about, but Fellow Travelers is the book that has had a huge influence on my life and my love story. Um, And now you've got a new book coming out in February. Yes. Uh, It feels in some ways like a one-off, but, um, you know, in that it's almost entirely devoid of politics, which... That may have something to do with our times. Although I really, um, it was a kind of back burner project or it was in a drawer of my filing cabinet for about, um, gosh, about 15 years ago. I wrote some of this book that's coming out in um, February. I wrote some of it as far back as I think 2007 or eight. And uh, it was one of these stories that just kind of got hold of me. Um, this actor, Dick Coleman, who was murdered in New York in 1980, uh, the height of his show business fame was this uh, sitcom he had. It lasted one year on NBC called Hank. And it was a more ridiculous premise even. This was the era of shows like My Mother the Car. you know. And uh, he was a college drop-in, and he would assume disguises in order he desperately wanted an education. His parents were dead and he was uh, raising his little sister and he desperately wanted an education. And so he would pretend to be students that he knew were going to be absent uh, on a certain day. 
So it, um, it involved lots of disguises, whatsoever. It was v very silly, uh, very kind of charming, well-intentioned. Um, although Coleman himself was not a very popular character uh, among uh, his peers. But um, in any case, I used to watch this show when I was in the ninth grade. And I was desperate to go to college. Nobody in my family had been to college. And uh, it was um, how one actually got to college was a complete mystery uh, to me. And uh, I'm sure it was always on my father's mind. How am I going to pay for this if he really wants to do this? And so um, it kind of stuck with me, this story. And then he had been murdered. Um, and I, um, something about it, I, something about it uh, intrigued me. And uh, I talked about it for years with Dan Frank, who was my wonderful editor for 25 years. We did 10 books together. And uh, Dan died in 2021. And um, Dan was always very reluctant about it because it, it, it didn't really seem to fit with a lot of the you know, work I had done. And, um, but I was persisted, persistent. And he finally signed it up uh, a few years ago. And um, I, uh, I think I had first come to him with it um, after Watergate, which was, for me, uh, a, <laughs> a commercial success, uh, you know, which, which I have uh, had uh, at great intervals. And, um, and I, I remember Dan and my agent, you know, both as gently as possible saying, you know, you would be crazy not to follow this up with another political novel. So, um, and then that turned into a third novel. And uh, so, uh, but finally, um, I really wanted to do this. And uh, so I got started and it, um, you know, uh, the bulk of it was written, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, but but the, the research uh, had, uh, been in a drawer for ages. Uh, I had to do a lot more, but uh, but I had a head start on it way before I really began to write steadily. One of the one of the reasons I really enjoy reading this book is exactly like you described because it was it was a in some sense it was a step away from Washington yeah. D.C. Very much so. Yeah. And what was for me and and for those that I'm related to that are super excited to read this book, I actually have a lot of family from Hollywood. And so when I was reading it, I was pulling up Wikipedia. One of the things that I've done with a lot of your books, and I think a lot of other folks have too, is that they love that it is rooted in research and it's, yeah. it is real people. Um, and obviously there's you know, creative literary license a little bit between things that are said, but these, these, are, these are real people. So I pulled it up and I was reading about the you know, the Desilu productions yeah, yeah. and reading about Dolores Gray and like, and the fascinating part about it for me was I, I can't wait to talk about it with family members of mine yeah. who are from the Hollywood era. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my mom would have loved this book mm -hmm. because, you know, she was born in 44 uh, mm -hmm. and grew up in Hollywood and would yeah. know all these people um, and would certainly know the yeah. shows that are referenced in it. And so for me, it brought a whole level of comfort and appreciation yeah. Um, that was completely outside this, 
this commonality, this 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 theme of DC that I've I've come yeah. to to know you. But then again, you grew up in in the in New York, essentially. So. I did, yeah. I mean, we came here to live in 2003. I mean, I had spent a lot of time in Washington over the years, um, you know, researching things, and uh, then my first involvement with the NEH. Um, and I liked Washington. I liked the idea of um, going there and. Um, uh, but we didn't actually move here till '03, and I, uh, uh, I remember uh, Jay Perini, who's a friend of mine. Uh, another uh, Jay does all kinds of things, but including historical novels. And I know him from Breadloaf. And one person we had in common was Gore Vidal. Mm. Jay knew Gore very well; wrote a biography of him. And I knew Gore slightly. Uh, I had edited a number of pieces with him at GQ uh, in the early '90s. And uh, so Jay called me up one night, uh, or we were on the phone one night uh, shortly after I moved here, and he said, um, oh, I talked to Gore. And he said, I told him you'd, you'd moved to Washington. And I said, oh, what did he say? And uh, Vidal said, oh, it'll be the death of him as a novelist. Why, you know, it's a terrible town for fiction writers, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, it was funny because, I mean, years later, uh, you know, Dan Frank said, uh, you know, the smartest thing you ever did was move to Washington because uh, that was where so much of your subject matter was. But um, it's, um, it, but yes, it, it's, um, it, I, I mean, for all the obvious reasons, it's an interesting place to write fiction, but um, it's not my hometown. Uh, it is by now, I suppose, uh, but it, it's not uh, where I grew up, and um, I don't think I, I don't think I was ever in Washington, um, not even on like a class trip until yeah. I was in my 20s. I don't think I ever came to Washington. What was your first trip like here? Do you recall? I think I, think I actually um, came down to see a friend of mine from graduate school, uh, Joanne Panza. And she was, I'd met her um, at Harvard when I was a graduate student. She was uh, doing a year at the Kennedy School. She'd been sent by um, the agency she worked for. And, um, uh, and so I visited her, and, and she took me around uh, Washington and you know, saw all the monuments and everything else. But um, it, it seems sort of surprisingly late, given how much you know, I've uh, you know, thought about Washington and written about it in the years since. You know, it's interesting you'd mentioned the <clears throat> some of the things I was reading about your history and obviously having moved from New York to D.C., there, there is this uncanny ability, I think, to capture the, the essence of Washington, D.C., and as someone who's lived here multiple times. But I do think it's interesting. There was a myth, right? There was a myth about Washington that historical literary fiction couldn't really thrive here. Um, and I think I read something that said something, something along the lines of it can't flourish alongside the Potomac. Right, like yeah. it can in certain, um, you know, between the towering uh, skyline of New York yeah. and other literary towns. So, what called you to move here? Well, um, the uh, in two thousand two, uh, I was appointed to the um, the NEH's National Council, which is a tiny little position. You come to Washington four times a year for these meetings, but you have to go through Senate confirmation and <laughs> all of this. And I was spending time down here. I wanted to write um, about uh, a, 
more about the city. I, the way Fellow Travelers got started was, um, and this has been the case with a number of my uh, novels, uh, I actually was trying to write uh, or had the idea of writing a piece, a magazine piece of nonfiction um, about um, Fred Fisher, who was the lawyer, the young lawyer, who was the subject of the famous Joseph Welch question, have you at long last no decency, sir? And uh, we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of uh, the Army McCarthy hearings. And for one reason or another, that piece just never got off the ground. But I then started, uh, when we were in the house, um, I really started thinking about uh, writing fiction and uh, uh, about this topic. And, and the house, it, I mean, that's our old house in Foggy Bottom that mm -hmm. figures largely in the book. Yeah. And, um, and I, uh, you know, said somewhat fancifully one uh, time to somebody that, you know, I actually, there's some nights I can almost see these two guys on the stairs. And um, so, um, but I was always interested in politics, which, uh, you know, naturally would lead to Washington. I mean, the, the uh, absolute formative political experience of my life was the um, 1960 Kennedy-Nixon election. Um, I turned nine the week of the election, but I was um, completely up on it. Uh, I went to uh, fourth grade with a Nixon button uh, every day, and I used to talk to my fellow fourth graders about how um, John Kennedy didn't really have enough experience to be president of the United States. Well, and actually, um, they, uh, we, we, were, um, we were sort of, uh, uh, I mean, the town, I'd be curious to know the, uh, what the vote in the town was. I, I did uh, in uh, some piece later on, or by this point, everything begins to blend together. Um, I researched the town uh, in 64, uh, the year of the Johnson landslide. Uh, Little Stewart Manor, New York, which was mostly Irish Catholic, uh, somewhat becoming um, Italian Catholic as well. But in 64, they voted for Goldwater over 60% and gave uh, a kind of similar margin, majority anyway, um, to Bobby Kennedy in the Senate race. So that that was that was the ticket splitting that went on in Stewart Manor. It was um, the people voting Goldwater and Kennedy, and um, the uh, the Kennedy vote was um, more an expression of Irish grief, I think, than it was an expression of where their politics were beginning to incline them. And uh, and you know, but it, the, my father, in some ways, was typical of uh, the voters. Uh, in that as uh, young people, they had been New Dealers. They, and, and my father was an admirer of Franklin Roosevelt uh, up until he died, uh, even though he was uh, fiercely for Goldwater and Nixon and so forth. And um, they were all surprised to find themselves as prosperous as they were. Suddenly they had these modest houses in the suburbs, but you know they could trace their own um, childhoods back to tenements in Hell's Kitchen, places like that. And um, so th they, you know, during the Eisenhower years, they all began 
to uh, move uh, to the right. And um, but I, I would say that uh, you know Washington was uh, it was always loomed in my mind, and I I read at um, from the time I was maybe twelve to f uh, fifteen, sixteen. Uh, you know, the period when I w could get my adult library card yeah. uh, at 12, I uh, just ravenously consumed all of these novels like Advice and Consent, certainly, uh, Seven Days in May, Night of Camp David, Failsafe, you know, all of these books. And um, most of them, I, w I wouldn't have realized at the time, most of them were not terribly well written, but they... Um, they had uh, an influence on me, and I even, um, when I was, I'd say about 15, I started uh, to write a novel called Impeachment. I was ahead of my time, and I can't remember why the president in it got impeached, but my, I'm, my father patiently read every, every word of it as I, you know, produced it. And um, so I think the... Um, the political subject matter was, uh, you know, probably inevitable. I mean, I got a late start as a novelist, period. I was an academic. I was a PhD. I didn't publish my first novel till I was uh, 36, and um, which doesn't seem very old right now uh, to me. But uh, at the time, in, in the era of the 1980s, you know, when you had this, the brat pack of novelists, uh, it seemed like... Um, uh, you know, uh, a late start because I, I was writing nonfiction and criticism mostly. Right. I'm curious. You had mentioned sort of that getting the library card at 12. Um, who were your childhood idols? If you can, if if did you have? As um, you mean, uh, as authors? Well, as authors or oh. or beyond literary. Uh, well, I I mean, I still uh, my, I think it went over to the Library of Congress with the rest of my papers about a year ago. I'm, my sixth grade autograph book says, um, uh, my hero is and John Glenn. Um, and I had my father's autograph book from eighth grade, which was as far as he got in school. And it said, my hero is Lindbergh. And that was 1928 uh, when he was leaving for eighth grade. Um, um, I, uh, the, um, I, Kennedy was always, a, a, an unusual figure for me, and I'll, I'll send you a link to a, something I wrote for, for what would have been his 100th birthday uh, in The New Yorker. Uh, uh, it was a piece they titled Jack Be Nimble, and um, it's based on my uh, uh, a letter I wrote to Kennedy uh, when I was 10, wow. uh, 10 or 11, uh, 10, I guess, still, and um, uh, which I found in the Kennedy Library. And I... Uh, he was an ambivalent figure, uh, um, or I had ambivalence toward him in that, uh, you know, my father, uh, and by extension, I were passionately for Nixon in 1960. Um, uh, but he, you could not uh, avoid being swept up in the glamour. And the, the piece is sort of about how, um, uh, I had a kind of, you know, secret um, admiration uh, for Kennedy, even as we were entering uh, the brief Goldwater era uh, of the Republican Party. But um, so certainly, um, 
Kennedy and uh, to an extent, uh, an odd extent. Oh, I was mad for space. That was another thing. And I, the Project Mercury, um, which you know fit inside Kennedy's administration, all of the flights. Um, uh, in later life, I became a good friend of Scott Carpenter, the astronaut, and uh, his first wife, Reen, uh, and wrote a novel called Aurora 7, which is the sort of uh, most autobiographical foray into fiction uh, that I've done. I mean, with the possible exception of my first novel, Arts and Sciences, which is a kind of graduate school comedy. But Aurora 7 is the world of my childhood. The, uh, the town that's called Melwyn Park in the novel is really Stuart Manor. Mm -hmm. And uh, it all takes place on the day of Carpenter's flight. Yeah. And so all of the astronauts uh, whom I knew everything about, I would say them. I, um, my favorite book was a book, a novel called Men of Iron, by <laughs> the butchest title in the world, uh, by Howard Pyle. Uh, and it was about um, knighthood and uh, you know uh, how you became a knight and so forth. And I read it and uh, it had an enormous, um, Miles Falworth uh, was the hero and it had a huge impact on me. And I read, um, I, just, I read constantly and I read, um, I, I read biographies of, famous Americans. I can see them all now. There was this series in the school library, the elementary school library. They were all bound in orange cloth. They were all exactly 192 pages. I mean, and whether you were Molly Pitcher or Thomas Jefferson, you got, you got 192 pages. <laughs> and we would go to the library on Fridays. The class would visit and I would, um, uh, you know, take out a, I don't know if they let you take out more than one book. Um, I mean, the library was much smaller than this room. And, uh, you know, and I would always be done with it before Monday and bring it back to Mrs. O'Dwyer, the librarian. I mean, re one remembers all these people. Um, uh, you know, they imprint themselves on you at, at when you're that young, whereas um, people you met you know, two and a half years ago, you just uh, have trouble fetching up the name. It's interesting you mentioned that. One of my sort of favorite pastimes back when I was traveling a lot more and I would go to different colleges or universities to speak for whatever occasion, I would go to the library and I would purposely look for uh, a book by a Russian poet or a Russian author because I spent four year, my four years of high school in Moscow, Russia. I learned about Russian literature and poetry in, in the language, yeah. learning the language. And so it has a real special place in my heart. And one of the things I would do at a university is I would go to the library and I'd try and find a book written by one of these Russian authors. And I would actually look at the last time it was checked out. Yeah. Because a lot of these books still had the you know Dewey Decibel system and the yeah. card. Yeah. And I would start taking pictures of the last time it was checked out. Yeah. And some of them would, last time it was checked out was like 1948. You yeah. know, and you'd have the stamp in there. And I realized, the, the gap in time between the last time and maybe this time yeah. or maybe when they transferred over to a digital catalog. But I would just hold that in my hands and, yeah. and, and the power of that, like it, it was significant to me. And um, I would try and do that when I would go to different colleges and universities because to me, it's in these books that you know, 
some, at some point in 1948, it inspired somebody on that campus. Yeah. And it probably was an all-male campus at the time, and yeah. the world was completely different. So I find myself missing those moments, right? It's a tactile experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I miss that. Uh, I mean, I, I've had that with, um, there was a, uh, still is a little uh, library, uh, private library, the General Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen on 44th Street, um, just west of Fifth Avenue. And I, when I worked at Condé Nast, I used to go there a lot. And I remember taking out a book um, from there in connection with a novel of mine called Two Moons, which is also a Washington yeah, novel. Washington was next, yeah. And, uh, and the, this would have been uh, the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. And um, I am not kidding you, the previous uh, date due stamp was from 1912. And, uh, you know, we've this first time this book had gotten any air, uh, you know, since uh, that period. And uh, those things, um, uh, they do mean a lot. I mean, I've, I've, the um, relics uh, has uh, as a subject has interested me. I, wrote, I once wrote an essay about the things that were uh, in Lincoln's pockets on the night he died. They're kept in a special box at uh, the Library of Congress. And um, those... Um, kind of tactile things, um, they figure in some of my novels. There's the, the object in Fellow Travelers, and um, there in um, the, uh, the new novel, the uh, Kalman book, there's uh, a pin mm -hmm. that uh, is there partly to be the clue um, to uh, how things went down right. when he was murdered, a fictional version of how things went down. Um, but it also becomes a kind of emotional token between uh, the two uh, men in the novel, Matt and Devon. So um, so clearly uh, those kinds of things, I, uh, I mean, I have lots of little trinkets and things. Uh, you know, I still have my first communion pin and uh, all of those things. Yeah, I think the word relics is such a beautiful word because I also think back to like, there's, there's such a, there's such a, almost a fine line between what is a castaway and what is a relic. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's in that space in between where these stories lie. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, to me, that's why I can still get emotional yeah. um, when, when rereading portions of something like yeah. Fellow Travelers. And, and for me, one of the, Things I remember the day before or maybe two days before I left Washington DC so I lived here for about 14 years and then we moved out west to Seattle and one of the days before I actually chose to take this book and go through and every address that was listed because again your oh research is very <laughs> accurate I went to every location now, oh now granted it's different parts of Foggy Bottom yeah, yeah. and but having worked at the State Department having yeah. been up on the hill um, and I did, a, I did a walking tour of oh. the addresses for one last time before I left Washington oh because yeah. it is such a part of my story, our yeah. story, and because you use real research, actual locations. Yeah. Now, granted, it's not going to be the same place that you describe. However, it is an actual location. Yeah. And having been you know, a member of the Army-Navy Club and been there so many yeah. times, so, so to me, it is. It is 
it is life coming to another dimension off the pages. Yeah. Which to me, that's what literary fiction and historical fiction, the best part yeah. about it, is it there's an intimacy to it. Yeah. That I don't think you get in, in, in many other forms. Well, having to go to the places, be inside the places is very important to me. Uh, you know, people who pass um, the, uh, what once was the old U.S. Naval Observatory and then became the, um, what was the top? Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, I think. Um, and uh, the, the dome is still there. The, uh, the, obviously, no astronomy is practiced there anymore. But uh, the dome is still there, uh, and Lincoln was under that dome. Lincoln came there in 1863, uh, and he looked at the star Arcturus uh, through the telescope. Uh, this was right around the time of Gettysburg. And so um, it's one of the oldest buildings in Washington that people don't realize. There's very, very little of pre-Civil War Washington that's left. Um, one of my favorite blocks is, um, you know, the block with the National Portrait Gallery, uh, which used to be the patent office. It's across from the Hotel Monaco, which used to be the post office. The you know, museum was there. yeah, yeah. there's the. But anything that's pre-Civil War is surprisingly rare. Mrs. Surratt's house, mm -hmm. the boarding house is still there. Um, and as far as I know, doesn't have any significant protections. Um, and that's kind of a happening part of town right now. So it, uh, I don't know how long that will last. But that was important to me. And um, these objects, uh, when I wrote a little book of nonfiction called Mrs. Payne's Garage, which was about the Kennedy assassination and a woman who had gotten innocently enmeshed in it by helping out the Oswalds. It was in her garage that he had his rifle hidden in a blanket. And uh, the blanket figures largely in the story. And um, the blanket is in the National Archives with all of the um, other assassination artifacts. And I just... I had to see it because so much of the book was focused on the secrets that were being kept in that garage. And um, I had to write a letter to uh, uh, Steve Tilley, who uh, I don't think he's still the uh, director, but he was in charge of all the archives materials relative to uh, the Kennedy assassination and Watergate. Uh, and some of the ones uh, for the Clinton-Lewinsky uh, scandal. Okay. And I had to write a long letter trying to justify why I needed to see this. And, uh, I mean, he had a very... Uh, he constantly had to thread the needle because the, arch of it, the archives are supposed to be open to everyone. They're not... You don't have to have a PhD to go in there. It's a citizen's archive. And yet given a subject like the Kennedy assassination, you're going to get a lot of freaky requests to see things. So I had to sort of, you know, portray myself as uh, a serious person. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, I, I had a commission to write a portion right. of the book for The New Yorker. That was not going to hurt. But, um, but I essentially had no reason other than I've got, 
I just need to see it. I just need to, to see it. And um, it, uh, same reason I had no real need ever to be in the house, uh, which Ruth Payne, the woman I wrote about, had long since uh, moved away from. But I, I had to feel yeah. something. And, um, uh, and I remember they took out the blanket and they very carefully unwrapped it. And it was this horrible East German manufacturer and it, these green and brown uh, thing. And then I saw all the green and brown geometric stuff. Um, I said, without even thinking, I, I said, oh, it looks like camouflage. And of course, that's what it was in a way. Uh, you know, it, it was hiding something. Right. And um, so, uh, and even in that book, Aurora 7, the Gregory, who's a sort of spookier version of me uh, as a child, uh, he's, it, it talks about how he's possessed of more than the usual child's sense of animism, uh, the sense that things are alive and you know, can be endowed with, or, or can uh, have personalities that you can perceive. Absolutely. Speaking of things coming to life, Fellow Travelers is being turned into a miniseries. I'm curious how that change is for you to, to, to go from pen to paper, pa paper to page, page to book, and now yeah. book to miniseries. How's that feeling? Well, I had um, a, a wonderful dry run for it with the opera they made out of Fellow Travelers, and I uh, stayed out of that uh, the whole time it was being put together by very, very talented young people. Greg Pierce was the librettist. Uh, he just did the libretto for The Hours, uh, which uh, premiered at the Met just about a week or two ago. Um, Kevin Newbery was the conductor. Greg Spears was the composer. And uh, it was Greg Pierce who came to me. I knew Greg slightly in New York. Uh, he was a very young uh, writer of fiction in those days. He's since distinguished himself as a playwright and librettist. And um, he asked if uh, I would be interested in allowing him and a couple of other people to um, try to adapt this. And uh, I said, sure. Um, and um, I think I actually may have said to him, um, you want to make an opera out of it? The book isn't gay enough already? Uh, something like that. But I didn't, I, I, this was such a daunting task I, that I didn't know. I knew these were very talented guys, but uh, the number of hoops they had to jump for development. So I stayed out of it and I then, um, I was there for the premiere and um, they did the most exquisite uh, adaptation and piece of work. So that was uh, wonderful and I was happily surprised. Uh, but with, um, with what's going on now, I, I decided um, that would be the best policy, again, uh, just to stay out of it. They're, um, uh, they're doing lots of different things, I know. I know the story is going to go beyond the novel. They're going to take it right through the 70s, uh, 80s. And um, I mean, Timothy lives until the early 90s. Um, I don't know exactly what they're going to do with it. But uh, the screenwriter is uh, Ron Nicewaner, who uh, had an Oscar nomination for the script he wrote for Philadelphia uh, with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. And 
you know, people, uh, when, you know, Matt Bomer is playing Hawkins Fuller and Jonathan Bailey uh, is um, playing Timothy Laughlin. Um, and uh, I've seen these photos from the set where he's wearing my glasses and is sort of, um, uh, you know, they've got him looking like Timothy. And, uh, but people said, oh, my God, have you gone up to the set in Toronto? They've been filming for months. I think they're still filming. They're getting to the end of it now. And I said, no. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, they're all saying you'll never get rich playing another man's game. And uh, I just think the best thing I could do is, uh, you know, stay out of their hair. So I will be um, uh, more than interested to see, you know, what happens, I think that uh, long-term, it'll keep the novel alive, uh, and uh, you know that's uh, all to the good, and I, I have a feeling it'll be uh, you know, very worth watching. Yeah, to, to steal a line from the book, Jesuits would love that hawk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an element to it that, um, very similarly, so I had mentioned to you things like, sometimes people will say, have you seen a film you know, the film version of your favorite book. And in some ways I don't. I, I, I try yeah. not to go there because I have my own images, right. um, my own sensations, my right. own walks with these characters. But I am also very excited that it is, it is going to come to an entirely different generation yeah. uh, of viewers and yeah. readers. And I do hope that it brings people that watch it, be it for the names or not, yeah. and learn an entire part of history yeah. that... As we talked about before, people probably don't know the 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 intimacy of the history of, of yeah. you know this story and its historical you know precedents. Well, I mean, Kevin Newberry uh, and and all these people involved in the opera they've become good friends uh, over the last half dozen years or so. And Kevin, who uh, uh, directed the original production uh, in Cincinnati and has directed a number of them since. Um, Kevin is a very warm, emotional, as well as creative person, and um, he, uh, you know, he he's working with um, always a very young cast because the the main characters in the book are young, mm -hmm. and so they don't, unless they have gone out of their way to to read um, the history uh, things like David Johnson's book on the Lavender Scare, unless the, they've acquainted themselves with that, they really. Um, don't know uh, much about the period besides uh, what's being put on stage. And he uh, tries to um, get them to know uh, things um, about the period. And he has a very emotional feeling to the real people whose lives were upended by this. And uh, he, uh, in the uh, you know, either at the dress rehearsal or just before they go out that night, he always tells them, remember you're singing for them. Because there is, there's a piece of it which, I mean, how do you possess, I think as a character, um, even for an actor, how do you possess the purity mm. of this? And that, and, and part of the reason, you know, for me it struck such an accord is, is because of those years that I served under Don't Ask, Don't oh, Tell. Sure. Yeah. And which, which I still remember as, and most people, most very young people, especially young gay people, they are astonished to learn 
that don't ask, don't tell was considered a liberal, a liberalization. It was considered a progressive thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, um, the speed with which things have moved since then uh, is really quite astonishing. But the, um, but yeah, the, I mean, the, the history behind it is, um, I think, you know, one tries in, in writing a book like this or uh, in making an opera out of it or making a television series out of it, um, to remember the the reality, uh, you know, uh, that it was trying to reflect. There was one uh, time I remember when I was, you know, doing the usual radio promotion for the book when it first came out. I was doing somebody's show here in Washington, and it was a call-in show. And a woman called in, and she had been a young uh, uh, person. I don't know. I don't think she was very high up. She worked at the State Department. And uh, she remembered this man who worked down the hall from her and just one day was gone. And uh, she didn't know why, whatever. And she saw him six months later on the street. And he came up to her and she said, oh my goodness, there you are. Well, you know, where have you been? And uh, he actually said to her, um, you don't want to be seen with me. Uh, and I mean, I, that is so astonishing in a way, because it, rather than, you know, pour out his heart and rather than say, you don't know what those bastards did to me, uh, whatever, he was feeling protective toward her that literally just by being seen with me could cause a problem for you. Yeah. And um, so uh, those stories, uh, I had a number of them from uh, people who wrote me letters, you know, after the book came out uh, with their own memories. Uh, those stories are are real and, uh, you know, are realer than the book. And heartfelt. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think back to my first Pride that mm -hmm. I ever went to, right, you know, here in D.C. I was hiding behind street signs. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, too, from the standpoint you mentioned, it wasn't so much about, when I think back to that time, it wasn't no, so much about somebody seeing me but the position I would put someone in having seen me. Yeah. Because then what did they do with that information? Yeah. And that there's levels of dimension to that, which I think it is important that people remember this because, yeah, we, we think we are advancing, and in many ways we are, but we also don't have to look too far in the headlines to realize, in some cases, mm -hmm. that we slide back, and so we have to remember those. Well, I mean, it's an astonishment to me that the... Uh, marriage protection that went through the Senate last week, that that happened and that that was an easier lift than, say, trying to create the uh, equivalent protection for abortion. Yeah. And I don't think anybody could have predicted that, you know, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I obviously didn't live through this period I wrote about. I was, but the first... I think it was the first note I made for the book when I was doing fiction was, you know, you make notes and give little resumes to the characters. And I wrote Timothy Laughlin, uh, born November 2nd, 1931. I was born November 2nd, 1951. And I was very conscious that I was projecting myself back 20 years. But there are things that still seem astonishing to people. You talk about hiding behind that sign. I remember 
when I was a freshman in college in the fall of 1969, I had a subscription to Time Magazine, which came to my mailbox uh, every week. And uh, they did a cover story uh, called, I think, The Homosexual in America. And I am sure that, uh, this was only months after Stonewall, I am sure that the article today would make one cringe. Uh, but uh, the idea that this was a subject worthy of a cover story was, and uh, I remember taking that uh, magazine out of the mailbox and inserting it uh, you know, between books I was carrying so that nobody would see uh, that I was taking a special interest in it. And I remember walking back to my dorm room with my heart pounding, wanting to read this because I knew this was about me and, uh, you know, hoping that my roommate wouldn't be there and that I would have the room to myself and I could just read it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, things like that are unimaginable today. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I did have one question with regard to who this is dedicated to. Yes. So can you tell me, I, I did a little research and I, and I, is it, is it a percussionist? That's yes, not, that a, is, it is a, the percussionist. He's a classical musician okay. who's a, a close friend. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and he's one um, generation down from me, you know, um, and uh, so, this is uh, even further away, you know, this uh, material from, uh, you know, from anything he lived. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born in 1970. And um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I never really consciously thought about um, teaching anything in historical fiction. I mean, and I, and I believe in the facts. I mean, I, sometimes people have said to me over the years, oh, I've learned so much history from your books. And I said, oh, don't, don't, be, don't be, be careful, because, you know, I've also manipulated a lot of history. And I, so if, you know, if you really want to know about this period and uh, what it meant, if you really want the facts of the period, do something like read David Johnson's book. Um, but Historical fiction, it, it always has that aspect to it. And uh, with, you know, any luck, it will impel people to go to actual history and, and learn things. And, uh, and I think the people who write this kind of fiction, the biggest mistake you can do uh, or that you can make when writing this kind of fiction is to consciously try to make it an allegory of the present and consciously try to layer in connections between the area you're writing about and the area you're living in. If the connections are there, they'll manifest themselves on their own. It, whereas if you try to um, jam your elbow into the reader's ribs, it's gonna be a misfire. It's not going to work. And thinking about t today, the era that we are in today, has your process changed? So, for example, the research part of it is, as, as an aspiring writer myself, 
I find, as you said, drawing up the resumes of characters to be my favorite part. Yeah. Character development, and and one thing I've I learned, I took a course many years ago, but um, give yourself permission to spend time with the characters. And I would find mm. myself going places, new parts of the world, and asking myself, how would Timothy right, right. be in this situation, or, or, or you know, the character either that you're developing mm. or that you identify with. As you think about today, technology, I'm even using, right, like my notes are on a digital pad and we've got all sorts of things. Has your process changed over the years? Or is it very much, is the fidelity still there? Uh, in that um, the research always gets voluminous. Uh, I do a lot of tight outlining of every chapter, the outlines are so detailed, but by the time I write, it's almost like rewriting. I think the only time I ever felt overwhelmed by research was when I was writing the Watergate novel. There was so much. There were all of these memoirs that the principals had written. There were the transcripts of the Senate hearings. There were House transcripts. There were innumerable histories. There were the tapes, which you know were an incomparable, one-of-a-kind resource, right. um, and you can get into that dissertation syndrome where you're never going to start writing because you think I can't possibly write until I've read every word yeah. ever written about this subject, and. Uh, Obviously, with something like the Coleman thing, although I, I did, do have big, big boxes of uh, court records, records from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, you know, copies of them. But I, I think it's essentially uh, still the same process. And there are times over the years when I thought, uh, you know, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. PhD, those five years at Harvard were quite miserable. Uh, but um, they did, in addition to teaching me uh, a lot about literature that came in handy uh, both when I'm writing criticism and writing fiction, uh, it did uh, teach me about um, research. And uh, w one thing that has, of course, absolutely changed things is the web. And I remember when the last novel I wrote before I was online was Dewey Defeats Truman, mm -hmm. set in the late 40s. And I remember what it used to be like to check on things. I, uh, somebody drinks in the manuscript they drink, from a bottle of Orange Crush. Mm -hmm. I thought, was that out in 1948? And actually, no, it did not come out an, until later. And it, that was the kind of thing where you would have to go to the library and find these trademark directories. And uh, today, that's a five-second web search. Yeah. And so the, uh, the web has changed uh, things uh, very, very much. And uh, I, I'd say that's probably the the biggest change uh, in the way that I work. But I, I still feel um, I still feel wedded to the facts, not to fight the facts. 
if you fight the facts, um, if, you, if the facts are inconvenient, if, um, gee, I wish that character were actually, I wish that real life character were actually older than that, right? Um, if the facts are inconvenient, the very inconvenience they have, what you will try to do to accommodate them is gonna spark more creativity in you than just saying, no, I'll just change them and make things up the way that I want. So don't, so don't, um, actually, let me put it the other way. Let that be a source for creativity. Yes, the, the very resistance is, um, it, it forces you to put your mind uh, to things. And uh, I mean, the, the biggest example of that that I can think of is the, uh, my novel Henry and Clara, where, uh, which was about the couple in the balcony with uh, the Lincolns. Why has nobody made a movie of this book? That, that I don't understand. I, I, will, I will never understand that. But uh, I, I had written a considerable chunk of the novel before I realized that uh, Henry was not five years older than Clara, which is what I thought from the records I had available to me, uh, and what uh, and mistakes that had been perpetuated in histories and uh, you know research books for many years. But I discovered that Henry, who was Clara's uh, uh, stepbrother. Uh, as well as eventually her husband. The two families were amalgamated um, when uh, one of the parents from each of them died. Uh, I found out that Henry was not five years older than Clara. He was three years younger than Clara. And I remember thinking, well, who's gonna know? You know, um, it's just me and God are going to know. <laughs> And it is fiction, you know, you can always fall back on that. But I started thinking about this and I said, that, that is too big a thing to change. That is too big a thing to know and then not adhere to. Mm -hmm. And so I began to um, try to reimagine the characters in my head and I uh, changed uh, things uh, and realized that um, she had not fallen in love with her new older brother, whom I imagined her sort of hero worshiping when uh, this new young man came into the family. But she actually fell in love with her new little brother. And it um, added, <clears throat> I mean, there was always a whiff of incest around the story anyway, even though they didn't share any blood and were perfectly able to get married. Um, but it, added, uh, for lack of a better word, a certain kink to the story, mm -hmm. that, um, that she was feeling this romantic attraction to uh, the younger brother. And uh, so that, um, that was one experience that taught me don't fight the facts. Right, and, and, and you might say, as you're developing characters based on, you might say, well, what if? And the what if right. becomes, it opens a whole nother room right. of possibilities right. yeah which i think is wonderful to hear you say because i think a lot of times aspiring writers uh we snap ourselves to rigidity yeah, yeah. and we close down our yeah venture like 
ventricles. I don't know if that's the right yeah. word, but we essentially close down yeah. Yeah. the parts that can bring a whole other yeah. amount of heart to the story. Yeah. Two last questions for you. Mm -hmm. So I walked down Massachusetts Avenue coming here, mm -hmm. and I love going you know, down in front of the British Embassy, the Khalil Gibran, you know, um, sort of area. If you could choose another country or culture um, that you'd love to try to do the same approach with in terms of sort of picking a character in history or a time in history and write a historical fiction from that lens of a different country or culture, what would that be or, or what person would come to mind? I think it's a period that would come to mind uh, more than even a particular story. Uh, uh, it'd be France and probably post-World War II France. Okay. Maybe the same period, yeah. uh, but uh, something, I, French politics fascinates me. I read a lot of French history. Uh, I've read um, uh, gobs about the French Revolution over the years. I, I finally finished Carlyle's three-volume uh, history of the French Revolution, which I recommend to everybody. It is the wildest ride. It's like reading Tom Wolfe. <laughs> it's exclamatory. It's um, it, it's astonishing, and it's astonishing now to read it. And what it must have been like for his readers in the 19th century um, amazed me. I, I had read, I know I had read small portions of it, uh, you know, back in my PhD days, but I'd never read uh, the books through. It took me ages to get through it. And uh, it, it was extraordinary to me. I, I would never venture that far back into another culture. Um, in some ways, the farther you go back, the harder it is because the facts and the history are more remote and they depend entirely on what you can learn from books. In another way, it gets easier. If you go way far back, um, uh, it, it's easier to fake speech and dialogue because nobody really knows how people talked. Whereas if you're writing like a book like Dewey Defeats Truman in the 40s, there are people um, who will remember and will say, that's not quite right the way, uh, that character wouldn't have phrased it that way, things like that. But, um, but I think modern France, which is to say uh, France uh, in the years after the war, uh, really through the de Gaulle period, uh, you know, I first went to France at 19 and uh, was, uh, of course, enamored of all sorts of things. Uh, but I think that that probably would appeal to me. Uh, although I am going back to the Civil War one last time. The book after um, uh, the Coleman novel is a book called uh, The Late Unpleasantness, uh, which is a, a sort of comic euphemism that the Southerners often uh, use for the Civil War. And, uh, and it's this uh, sort of sweeping, or as, as Time Magazine, that subscription I used to have, would have called it a sprawling uh, novel. Uh, you know, I'm at work on that. And um, so uh, I, I don't see myself getting around to this uh, <laughs> French novel. I don't, I don't think I have it in me. Uh, well, it, that kind of brings me to the last question, which I think you actually started to delve into. The question I had was, and this actually triggered me a little bit because I walked across the Taft Bridge, but 
if there was one presidency or administration that you thought about going back to write, for example, the military aid to Roosevelt and Taft, uh, Major Archie Butt, yes, I, and how he died in the Titanic, mm -hmm. and the history of, and, and I only learned about this recently because of a Washington Post article, um, would that be intriguing enough to write about? Something along those lines, because I think there are so many stories of those within our realms. Yes, um, and even, uh, you know, if you went back, um, to, uh, you know, James Buchanan and the, uh, the uh, vice president from that era who, from Alabama, who uh, is believed to have been gay. I mean, there are plenty of gay stories, certainly. And, you know, anybody, I'll plug um, uh, my friend James Kerchick's uh, book, Secret City. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are um, at least 20 novels lurking in that. In that one book, yes. I absolutely, there's so many offshoots. So many know. stories that yeah. could be done. I mean, the whole uh, Sumner Wells story, things like that. I once, uh, after finishing Henry and Clara, I realized that gay or straight, whatever the subject matter was, you could have a very long, prolific career just writing novels about people who lived in Lafayette Square. Absolutely. You know, yeah. so, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm glad of, in a way, is that I've never been a practitioner of autofiction. Uh, I mean, except the, these early novels have me as a child in them or a very young man. But um, you never run out if you're writing historical fiction. You know, you whereas you can, I think, write yourself out if you're depending to a great deal on refracting your own experience into fiction. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation um, and thank such an you. honor, such an honor to meet you. It's, I mean, to, to get to meet the, the person behind the pen. That is very kind of you. Yeah. And I, I had a very fine time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Bill. And that brings the 2022 season to a close. I want to thank Thomas Mallon again for his time and generosity and spirit for joining us for the final episode of Coffee and Change this year. You can find more out about Thomas at thomasmallon.com. And certainly I recommend some of his greatest works, Fellow Travelers, and the Washington Trilogy, Watergate, Finale, and Landfall. And be sure to keep an eye out for his new novel coming out in February, Up With the Sun, and the miniseries on Showtime, Fellow Travelers. Thank you all for listening, and have a very happy new year. We'll talk to you in 2023.